0: You found the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our podcast, please help out the show by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. First, let me welcome our new patrons for this week, Kevin and Timothy. Thank you so much for your generosity and for helping keep this podcast going. Okay, we've got a lot of emails to get to this week. Not surprising considering last week's episode. So let's get right into them, shall we? I was honestly expecting some blowback over my reaction to the end of the last episode, referring to Marty's belly aching over the stoppage of work by the local government, over the possibility of indigenous Uh, artifacts being found in the swamp quite honestly i was expecting a lot more blowback than i got so i will start off with this from carl who sent an email titled terrible and all it says is check your confirmation bias at the door just present the facts well carl first of all thank you for listening and thank you for taking the time to write in even just that couple of sentences i just wish i kind of understood your criticism a little bit better I'm not sure I really have a confirmation bias as part of my reaction to last week's episode. Uh, I don't believe I was just sitting around waiting for a chance to jump on Marty Lagina for complaining about government involvement, but maybe I've given that impression over the last couple of years. I I don't really know. Uh, If that's true, please take my word for it. That is not my intention at all. Folks, I, I just want to take the time to mention this. This isn't fun for me by any means. I, I have said this many, many times, but maybe it bears repeating here. I love this show, The Curse of Oak Island. It's my favorite show on television. That's why I do this podcast. I completely respect the Laginas and their team, and I'm not trying at all to turn this podcast into something focused about complaining about the fellowship or complaining about the show. I know it can sound that way sometimes. That's a nature of these kind of things. Um, But that's the part of all this I don't like, right? I want to talk about discoveries. I want to talk about Oak Island history, about theories, those sorts of things. I'm not at all interested in discussing writing and editing and that kind of stuff. That's not my area of of research here. I do it because I think it's necessary to discuss those things in the context of what we're doing on this show. But it does give me no joy, Carl, to spend my time being angry with Prometheus or Marty Lagina uh, for the things they say or how they're portrayed. Anyway, thank you, Carl. I hope you keep listening despite the disagreement here. Okay, let's go to Jeff, who writes, Hey Dave, long time, uh, love the podcast, long time listener. In regards to the season 9 episode 3, I agree 100% that the editing on the show was bad slash bizarre. Marty certainly didn't look good. Laird was set up as the fall guy rest of the crew painted as greedy treasure hunters. It was cut weird, didn't seem to flow like a typical episode. I can only assume they're trying to set up some fake quote-unquote tension narrative for future episodes. Where I disagree, I think your criticism of Marty is overblown. The guy owns the land, poured tons of money into this project. He's following the regulations and laws. And the government steps in and says, stop. Marty should be upset and irritated about it. I never heard Marty or anyone else in the fellowship say the Mi'kmaq don't have a right to their culture, artifacts, etc. Keep the episodes coming, Jeff. And to this, uh, thank you, Jeff, for your email. And to this, I want to add an email that also came in from our friend Dan, who writes, uh, I was a bit taken aback by your comments on Marty in the last podcast. You, uh, you somewhat redeemed yourself at the end by discussing the possibility of some bad editing. When I talk to people about the show, The Curse of Oak Island, I describe it as a show based on a true story. Really, the only thing you can know for sure is the physical evidence. Everything else must be viewed as storytelling. For example, in many of the show promos, they will show Marty saying, it's all true, it's absolutely true. Then when you watch the show, what he really says is, yes, if we find the treasure, it's all true. We have no idea the words preceding whatever is said on the show, Uh, as well as Laird's look of frustration. We have no idea what that, what, when that took place, Prometheus is looking to create drama about the Canadian government shutting this down, getting everyone all worked up to stoke interest in the show. The next time you see Laird sigh, keep in the back of your mind, the sigh may have occurred two hours prior when they said they were serving liver for lunch. <laughs> Dan. Uh, Dan and Jeff, thank you both so much for writing in. I put your emails together because I think they both sort of served as a reminder to me and the listeners that yes much of the tone portrayed in the last episode might indeed have been the result of editing and I know I spent my time complaining mostly about Marty but I think that Marty and Prometheus all add all kind of are part of this right in my as part of what my criticism is um you know here's the thing I can't get past though these guys the Laginas are listed as executive producers for the show and I knowing what I know about their relationship with Prometheus over the years and the way they look at this show, um, I can't understand how if the show portrayed Marty inaccurately, that he would be okay with that and would have allowed it. Now perhaps I'm naive a little bit about how this all works, but that just seems unlikely to me. I know from my you know <laughs> discussions off the record discussions that one, this tension was very real um, that, you know, uh, Laird Niven was, um, getting it from both sides here, really. I mean, let's, that's kind of how it was explained to me. Uh, and also that, um, yeah, that Marty and Rick can step in and say they don't like something now, whether that ends up getting aired, I don't know, but, um, they certainly can do it, can do that now, but for sure the editing in this made it all worse you can just see that right and I think I also said it was poorly it was a poorly edited scene regardless of just the content right it was very choppy it didn't make a lot of sense I mean if you go back and watch it again we go from things like uh, we had a great meeting and okay let's have them come take a look and boy we're so happy to cooperate and do the right thing here to all of a sudden some like total anti government meltdown with all, with very little explanation as how we got from one to the other, right? I mean, Rick just sort of sitting there shaking his head, not really saying much at all. This all came out of Marty. And let's also say, I really do feel absolutely terrible for Laird Niven here. Um, why he was made out to look like the bad guy, I, I will never know. Um, you know, folks. Keep in mind, Laird is might be the only guy you see on a regular basis who doesn't work for the Laginas. Um, he does not have a stake or say in what's what gets edited or aired. Um, he he works for the government. That's why he's there. Uh, and if this portrayal was indeed inaccurate, right, well, let me just say this. Um, if this portrayal of Laird is indeed inaccurate, uh, you know, Laird, friend of the show, we are with you here. Um it really made it look like Laird's relationship with the rest of the fellowship is strained or in some sort of bad place. I hope it's not. I think from this latest episode, it seems like maybe it's better, uh, and, uh, and I have reason to believe that as well. Thank you guys so much for your emails. Okay, for a different take, let me get to an email from a listener named Richard who writes, and I'm going to do some editing here to keep the explicit tag off the show. He writes, I've never wanted to punch someone in the face as badly as I wanted to punch that entitled piece of, hmm, Marty Lagina. He is blatantly putting his own greed ahead of important archaeological finds. His ridiculous statement, quote, we are losing out property, losing our property by performing properly, is just straight out laughable. They are temporarily being restricted due to the discovery of historically significant artifacts. What a shameless, greedy little crybaby. Now, I won't expect you to read or reference this email on your show as it doesn't A, complain about the narrator, or B, talk about how extremely close they are to finally finding the treasure. Okay, Richard. As far as that last bit is concerned, uh, I don't even know how to respond to you. Uh, If you think I've been spending my time on this podcast complaining about the narrator or cheerleading for the dig team, I just don't even know what to say other than that is almost the total opposite of the entire point of this podcast. Uh, I'm going to do my best to keep an eye out on that. If that's what you think, um, I, I hope that's not the case, and I hope maybe you're confusing me with another podcast because that's just not what I want to do here. Um, other than that, I think the rest of your email speaks for itself. I think the line, um, quote, they are temporarily being restricted due to the his- discovery of historically significant artifacts is probably the single most important thing that everybody needs to bear in mind when we talk about this subject, no matter what your what your opinion is on the way people talk. That's what they did. They discovered historically significant artifacts. Thank you again, Richard. Hopefully the podcast is more to your liking in the future. Um, Speaking of the esteemed Robert Clotworthy, uh, let's go to Maura who writes, Hi, Dave. Love the podcast. You're 100% right about Marty and his American treasure hunter attitude towards the First Nation's people heritage. (laughs) Geez. I just wondered if you've watched Red Notice on Netflix it's a uh, it's a bit of a light-hearted action movie spoofing James Bond and other more self-serious treasure hunting movies. Anyway, if you watch it, you'll recognize our much maligned Oak Island narrator Robert Clotworthy taking a turn as the narrator of a hunt of the mythical and fictitious eggs of Cleopatra. It made me laugh, and I was glad to see that some uh, someone of a Hollywood elite must be Oak Island fans uh, to enjoy his style. He's only the first cu- only the first couple of minutes. Enjoy. Uh, could it be, she writes, Maura. Uh, Mora, I have not seen that. I, I will go and take a look at it. Um, I, this bears repeating. Uh, I don't say this enough. Robert Clotworthy is absolutely great at his job. And for somebody who does a little bit of narrating on his own, <laughs> I'm a DJ. I do this podcasting stuff. I admire the work he does. He's got a great delivery. He's really fantastic at um, portraying emotion in his voice, which is sometimes the hardest thing to do, right? And he does it with a great excitement. I think of a, a – it's different but the same way I think of great sportscasters who if you close your eyes and hear a goal scored, you're, you, the excitement builds and you just by the excitement in their voice. Robert Clotworthy has that same gift. Um, it's not his fault. <laughs> his job – of the time we complain about quote unquote the narrator, what we're really complaining about is the narration. And I try my best to say that there's a difference between the narrator and the narration. The narration is what he's reading. And Robert Clotworthy doesn't write that. Robert Clotworthy only reads it. Again, I don't say this enough. It's the writers, not the narrator. All right, let's go to our friend Tom who writes, Hi Dave, first I would like to encourage all your podcast listeners to look into a Patreon sponsorship for the wonderful job you do. If you log on to Patreon during the show, it is interesting to read yours and the other comments and observations. Yes, I'm going to stop here. Shameless plug for the Patreon. If you think the show is worth $5 a month, come help us out. That's a great way to uh, to keep it going and for me to justify to my wife all the time I spend doing this. Um, but <laughs> And we do one of the things, the only thing I do right now, I'm working on some other stuff uh, for the patrons, is during the airing of the show, I'm actually on the Patreon message board there discussing, just kind of giving my thoughts as it airs. It's the only place I kind of do my Mystery Science Theater uh, 3000 sort of um, take on the show as it airs. So become a patron. Uh, I jumped right on the chance to sponsor you when it was first announced. The way I look at it, I get your new podcast four to five times per month, and it's cheaper than a couple of pulls on a one-armed bandit at the casino. (laughs) Speaking of casinos, I'm going to Vegas tomorrow. Anyway, I, I digress. He continues. Second, I think it's very interesting that in America, there are some people that are trying to bury our past, but in Canada, they're trying to protect and uncover theirs. Third, It seems that there are a lot of ads being placed on the top of our heroes' heads. How do I get them to wear my merchandise? (laughs) This is turning out to be a very interesting season on Oak Island. Thank you once again, Tom. Uh, Tom, I can't answer that thing about the merchandise. If I can make a dig in Oak Island hat and get somebody to wear it, I would, believe me. Uh, But they seem to be all hats of companies they've either worked for. I know um, Rick always wears a hat that's uh, from his maybe his brother-in-law's dental practice. Uh, my dentist doesn't have hats, but apparently that's what he does. And and there's a few other things there, too. Um, thank you, Tom, for your email and your support. Uh, Patreon.com slash Dig Oak Island if you want to join us and support the show. Um, Tom, what bugs also bugs me uh, is how this all shook out, right? I mean, we've spent year after year hearing Rick say things like, I don't know, You've all heard it before, the treasure is the truth of what really happened on Oak Island, or or the real treasure is the story here, the history, right? They spent so much time and endless amounts of money with archaeological work. They always knew this kind of discovery was a possibility. And if they truly believed the island had secrets to uncover, then they must have always thought that something like this was inevitable. Then, then we get this anticipated pause. This is something that they always knew would happen, would might happen, and this is how they respond. Again, a lot of it just doesn't make sense to me. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate your email and appreciate all your support. Okay, it's time to head up to Canada. Here from a Canadian, right? Here is Sarah in Vancouver who writes, hi, Dave. Longtime listener writing in here from Canada's West Coast. I just finished your season nine, episode three podcast, and I wanted to say thank you for your honest thoughts regarding the discovery of the Mi'kmaq Pottery. I, too, was bothered by that war room scene, especially the editing. I honestly could not believe the character arc given to Laird, the CCH, and the interested Mi'kmaq parties. Really, Laird, the soft-spoken, dedicated, put his professional reputation on the line for the show, Laird? Since when did Oak Island become a series where we need to have some bad versus good person storyline? The edit was completely unnecessarily made Marty appear as a privileged, rich dude who doesn't care about our history or the indigenous peoples of Canada, but only about his treasure hunt. As you mentioned in your podcast about the unmarked graves discovered this past summer, now more than ever, uh, Canada is on a road of reconciliation with its indigenous peoples. And this edit came across as indifferent and disrespectful. If there is one thing I think we have all come to know on Oak Island about the Laginas is their character as kind and considerate individuals who have regard for Canadian laws and people shame on editing for this cut looking forward to moving past this negative plot to our otherwise regularly scheduled program best Sarah from Vancouver well thank you Sarah I'm also looking forward to that and I think this show kind of this week's episode kind of showed us that that might be what's happening um You know, let's see how it all actually uh, uh, shakes out, and if the show actually allows us to do that. They tend to harp on things like this quite a bit. Um, And if we we get what we got is really not what Marty thinks. uh, You know, I, I can't say this enough. If what we got last week was really not how Marty thinks about all this. I mean, it's up to him to correct the record. I mean, it's up to him to say this is not what he feels, that if, if that he does feel that the uh, history of the indigenous peoples is more important than the treasure hunt uh, in the swamp and could wait a few weeks while we do this, even if it means waiting the whole summer, you know, until next year. So be it. We've been waiting 230 years for this treasure hunt. <laughs> you know, I, I just I, if, if again, if that's not what Marty intended, he needs to correct the record. Okay, it's time to head across the pond and check in with our friend Gary, who writes, Hi, Dave, just caught up with your latest podcast on the uh, above episode uh, last week. I I totally agree with the points you raised regarding the cessation of work following the discovery of the Mi'kmaq pottery. If you recall, I raised the issue of what I believe to be shoddy archaeological practices around the Stone Road last season. When you put this to Laird Niven, he agreed and seemed to distance himself from that part of the excavation. I dread to think what information might have been lost had they carried on in the same seemingly haphazard fashion. Could this be could this explain the absence of Aaron Taylor? Um, I asked about the absence of Aaron Taylor. And the answer I got was he's doing other projects and that he just couldn't participate. Uh, You remember he's. He's not uh, professionally contracted. He is. He works at a university, so uh, I, I definitely seems plausible. You know. Anyway, he continues on a separate issue. I thought you might be interested in the attached screenshot of a recent Google satellite image of the swamp. Uh, you have commented on the fact that the swamp has been drained and the vegetation has started to grow on the exposed ground. The image seems to show the swamp underwater, as the storm, stone wharf cannot be seen. This is either due to the swamp not yet being fully drained or incursion of seawater during the stormy season. Uh, what then is the spit of land sticking out into the swamp further up the stone wharf? I have not seen this on any of the shots on TV. It's obviously higher than the stone wharf as it is not underwater and seems to be at a similar height to the cobbled road uh, running alongside the swamp. If they, if this has been constructed recently in connection with the excavations, then we can assume they have no longer have any interest in that area in the swamp. Uh, regards, Gary in East Yorkshire, England. Okay. I'll try to put Gary's picture up on the Facebook page so you can see what he's talking about. Um. Gary, this is a feature that has been there for some time if we're talking about the same thing. Uh, my memory is failing me here, and unfortunately this week, which I'll explain in a little while, I, I don't have time to really research this fully for you, so I'm going to just sort of say it here, and if there are any listeners out there who know what we're talking about, please comment on the Facebook page and let Gary know. I believe this has something to do with Fred Nolan. I think this is like a peninsula. They have they had a name for it. I cannot remember what it is off the top of my head, but I have seen it before. It is definitely not new. Um, I just, I I can't remember exactly what they called it or anything like that. Anyway, um, we'll try to get that answer for you. Again, I'm going away this week, so I can't get through this. Um, Get back to me next week if we don't get a good answer here uh, on the Facebook page, and I'll do my best to try to find that for you. It is pretty simple stuff. I just can't remember the name of it. Anyway, thank you, Gary. It's always great to hear from you. Uh, Okay, we have a lot to get through here, so let's go to Steve, who writes, Hi, Dave. Uh, Great podcast as usual. Keep up the good work. I agree with your take on Marty's overreaction to the hopefully temporary stop on work where the first nations pottery was found Uh, watching the show. It looked quite overblown to me and whether through editing or just wanting to create an issue where none exists, I can't see how these latest instructions differ from what is already in place uh, for other areas on the Island, such as Samuel ball's home in any event. They need to go slow, carefully document all their finds. In in archaeology, everything is about context. An artifact without context is pretty useless. This is why the money pit area is a lost cause, archaeologically speaking. Exactly right. Um, Thank you very much for that, uh, Steve, for sure. Um, Let me just say another thing, Gary, about, uh, go back to Gary about that photo that he sent, if that is a recent photo, I think we can kind of lead ourselves to believe that maybe work on the swamp was shut down for the entire summer. Hard to say. We will we'll, we'll, we'll learn that as we go on. Um, you know, maybe just not soon enough. There was talk about cofferdamming, that whole area and stuff that obviously didn't happen. Uh, so be that as it may, uh, we'll see as the season plays out. Listen, Steve, on what you're saying here, uh, these type of laws exist everywhere <laughs> in Canada and here too. If I dig a hole in my backyard and come up with something of archaeological significance, if I'm trying to build a g- garage back there, and I come up with something with, of archaeological significance and I report it, guess what? That's the end of my digging for my garage. It's the price. The problem here is it's the price of doing all this on television, right? If they wanted to work without anybody knowing what they're doing. They could have done all this without the cameras and been in basically the same shape as everybody else. (laughs) Listen, why do you think Dan Blankenship essentially walled off and chained off the whole island from visitors for years? I mean, it was difficult for people to get on the island. Uh, There are a lot of writers, including... um, you know, Darcy O'Connor and Randall Sullivan, guys who've written books about Oak Island, who talk about how difficult it was just to get on the island for many, many years because Dan wasn't allowing people on his property. Uh, why do you think he did that? It wasn't just because he didn't like Fred Nolan. Believe me, what he wanted to do was avoid the prying eyes and prying eyes of all kinds. Now, I don't think that I'm not I'm not uh, accusing Dan of hiding archaeological finds, but you, you get where I'm going here. That's, you know, they chose to do this on television and that's the risks they ran. Anyway, he continues. When Laird gave the news on the show, I had the impression that the delay was just a simple procedural matter to wait for the First Nations team to arrive and do their survey. How long this takes, we don't know and hopefully not long. But Marty's reaction looks out of proportion, especially after he had said a few minutes prior how they were going to do the right thing and did not express any concerns about it, and even seemed proud of that fact. I also found Marty's extrapolation of the gold composition data a bit much too, and I hope the finding of iron pyrite does not foreshadow news to come. I have also read about the tragedies suffered by the First Nations children in those schools, but as you mentioned, that is another topic. Let the proper authorities investigate and make sure everyone is satisfied before proceeding. It would make a nice TV show for us to see a meeting between First Nations people and the fellowship, which results in better understanding of the cultural sensitivities to set the tone going forward. As the search continues, it becomes more and more an archaeological historical story, more than a treasure hunt, which to me is fine. We've watched as the show has gone from a treasure hunt to adding full-time archaeologists plus other scientists to the crew why not expand again with more interaction with first nations people i first started watching the show in 2018 from the beginning i was always more intrigued by the historical story more than the treasure at the back of my mind i was always i always think what happens to the show if and when the treasure hunt uh, if and when they find the treasure the historical stories however can go on for quite some time personally another reason i enjoy the show is that it is good to watch people working together, enjoying what they do, without infighting, arguing, and the other silly, dramatic things that we see on so many shows today. We don't know how much editorial control the Laginas have over the show, or the producers, or more relevant, who is paying for all the operations there, but I hope the tenor of the show stays as it has been. Again, thanks for a great podcast, and looking forward to the next. Best regards, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Uh, That is all extremely well said. Um, I'll tell you what bugs me the most is, is that thought that, that sticks in my head that Laird Niven is getting a rash of nonsense from Marty or whoever or Prometheus or both for all this. And for what? For doing exactly what he was hired to do. This is why he's there. The government said, listen, and, and you can do whatever you want in the money pit. Outside of the money pit, if you're going to start digging this stuff up, We want to have an archaeologist there. If we should happen to find something in this area, then we stop and take a look and do the proper archaeological dig. Laird Niven has been on this show for how many years as he's been on it exactly for this reason. If these guys thought this would never happen, they were kidding themselves, (laughs) right? They were kidding themselves because... People knew there was a possibility. I mean, Nolan in the Swamp and all these other places, people knew there was a possibility that there was other things, unanswered, unexplained things on the island outside of the money pit. Everyone likes to theorize that. They all like to theorize that. They've been pushing those theories for years. That's why Laird Niven is here, right? Because you can't just tear up everything you find. That's just the way things are. And the other thing I want to mention And I've mentioned it last week, and we've said it here a few times. Um, You know, I'm an American. Most of my listeners are American for sure. we got a lot of Canadian listeners, a lot from overseas, but most of them are American. And I think we all have to be sensitive to the fact that this is not our country. We don't make the laws here, and we don't have a good understanding of the way people view this stuff in different parts of the world. And you need to understand that that's that that we need to be sensitive to that. You know, we need to try to gain that understanding and not just impose the way we do things onto the show and onto what people want to have done here on some remote island on the edge of the country in North Atlantic Canada. Right. So anyway, thank you very much again. Let's go now to the Patreon for a message from Ginger who says So last year, I sent you an email talking about the tunnel in the swamp. You said you weren't so sure there was one. It's part of uh, what Charles read from the pages of that ship's log. Dig a tunnel from the seashore. So the southeast corner of the swamp is revealing the entrance of a tunnel. It's the giant beans now revealed. Of course, now because of the found Mi'kmaq pottery, they can't dig there anymore to go get to the tunnel entrance. Ginger? I have to tell you, I love your enthusiasm, and I thank you so much for being a patron. But when it comes to this tunnel thing, I remain unconvinced. I am convinced, however, that the beams they found in the last show before they shut down were actually from the restalls. Uh, the rest work in just that area to find that mystery box of Jack Adams. Um, I have seen so far no evidence of a tunnel, nor have I heard any good convincing theories as to why one would build such a thing, a tunnel from the swamp. Um, But I am always, this is the important thing, guys. I'm always hoping to be convinced otherwise. And somebody's, your enthusiasm, Ginger, certainly could convince me pretty quickly. Keep in mind, I hope you're right. Let's see. Sooner or later, they're going to get back to this work. I mean, it's been over 200 years. We can wait a little longer, can't we? Ginger, thank you again so much for your support. Uh, I can't tell you what it means to me. It's always great to talk to you. Okay, let's go to Ryan now on Facebook who says, I was taken aback by the optics and verbiage from the war room. As a former trial attorney and now a New York state judge, I had to ask why. Then it occurred to me the reason this seemed so unusual to you, me and uh, many others, was the message in war room scene was not meant for us. Think Think of it this way. Derek Shelton, he's the manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates, Rory realizes I'm a Pirates fan, leaves the dugout to argue a call with an umpire. He knows he isn't going to change the umpire's mind or change the call. What he's doing is he's arguing for the next call. Uh, Marty was arguing or sending a message to the authorities. The proof can be found in how they view Laird Niven. The Canadian authorities obviously trust and respect him or he would not be on the island. The fellowship too has learned to rely on him and he has been a fan favorite because he's been a guest on every podcast. Uh, Yet he is a portrait yet. He is portrayed as Miss O'Leary's cow after the fire. The authorities do not want the show to end and they don't want Laird to quit. They have received a message to think long and hard before the next call. Judge Rodney. Um, Okay. I said Rory, right? But I meant Rodney. Uh, (laughs) Thank you, judge. Uh, what fascinating take you have here. Uh, I am a coach at a high school level, so I know exactly what you're talking about. I do exactly the same thing. I don't argue a call because I think it's going to change. I argue it because I want them to call it my way the next time. Um, it did occur to me that the authorities, um, the CCH, the Community, Cultural, and Heritage of New- of, um, of uh, Nova Scotia, and that the Acadian Nations and even the provincial government and even Ottawa, right? We're all going to hear this, right? I mean, that did that thought did occur to me that um, he's saying all this and they're all going to hear it, you know, as well as every citizen of of Canada and everybody in the indigenous, uh, you know, and every First Nations person in Canada as well. Um, Judge, that's a fascinating perspective. I really thank you for writing this. I'm, I'm going to keep that in mind and, and ask that question the next time I have somebody's ear out over there on the island. Uh, Keep them coming, Judge. Uh, I love when you guys think of stuff that really hadn't occurred to me. Okay, back north. Let's go to Ryan in Canada, who says, when reality and fantasy finally meet on Oak Island, up until now, it would seem that the Brotherhood has been blessed by their own failure to find anything on the island beyond rotten wood and rusty old junk. It's ironic that when they actually unearth a real object of archaeological work, they are completely uninterested at best and outright hostile to it at worst. This indigenous pottery, which has zero relevance to any wild treasure theory, seems to finally burst their treasure hunt fantasy, revealing the true futility of their decade-long hunt on the island and sends Marty into a tailspin. It seems that they would like the audience to believe this accidental find, which they seem shockingly blindsided by, could sidetrack and even shut down whatever future plans they have for the search. But could it be? <laughs> that is just engineering the end uh, this that this is just engineering the end of the show. This abrupt shift in tone feels contrived. Is this blaming it all on the dang old government red tape just a way of preventing the brothers from having to declare the obvious that there's nothing there? You pointed out on your last show that Marty's tantrum seemed heavily edited to emphasize his despair and frustration. Is this the showrunner's crafting a way out? and foreshadowing one last desperate money pit dig as the finale, would anyone be surprised that this is all they have left for this season and the show in general? Having it having it look like the government shut them down saves face and also allows the mystery to live on, which benefits the government as well, as Oak Island would remain still remain a tourist attraction. Just my thoughts after watching this episode, but it could be proven wrong, and next episode will change everything. I'm in- <laughs> I'm in Canada, I have to wait till next Sunday. Anyway, I greatly appreciate your podcast and almost look forward to it more than the actual show now. Cheers, Ryan in Toronto. And Ryan isn't alone here with this train of thought. Let's hear from Danny who says, Hi Dave, longtime listener of the podcast. I really appreciate the insight and perspective you bring each week. I agree with your sentiments regarding the end of, the, of last week's episode, especially the editing and framing of who was on the right side of history and who wasn't. Perhaps this is just my cynical nature taking me here, but I thought back to your comments earlier in the season around the attitude and perceived optimism of the cast members, how, quote, if they don't recover something this year, they could lose a lot of viewers. Could this perhaps be the editor setting up a scapegoat of sorts in the event they don't find a treasure? Almost a narrative of we should have done this, we should have done it this year if not for external forces. It felt like a shifting of burden to me in some ways. Who knows? I hope I'm wrong, but I was wondering that if they thought, if the thought crossed your mind, he was wondering if the thought crossed my mind, might explain why they made Laird seem so oddly exasperated. Anyway, appreciate your show. Looking forward to your thoughts. Danny from North Carolina. Gentlemen, Danny and Ryan, um, your theories are on the record. All I can say at this point is, uh, let's see how it all shakes out, you know, um, I I don't know if I'm ready, ready to be that cynical, (laughs) you know, I don't know if I'm ready to think that that's it. My, 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 my gut tells me that this is uh, simply nothing more than editors trying to create a story, a narrative of some kind, something for people to talk about, you know, the television version of clickbait, right? I mean, I just think it's something along that line. Uh, I, I don't think it's much more than that. Anyway. Everybody, thank you so much for your emails this week. This was fascinating. This is an incredible topic, and we have so much to talk about as the weeks go on. I'm sure we're going to be talking about this again. Uh, if you want if you know, if you want to get an email in to me for me to answer here in a future show, you can always do so. Just send it to digginok island at gmail.com. All right. Just want to let you in on some stuff here, which I've mentioned a couple of times. Thanksgiving morning, I actually fly out to the other side of the continent for a wedding this Thanksgiving weekend. Um, So I really was considering whether or not I'll be able to get a podcast up this week at all. Uh, But I decided to do so just because you had so many emails come in about last week's episode. I wanted to get to them. Uh, So I'm sorry for the sort of disjointed nature, my inability to read very well there. Uh, I didn't really have time to what I usually do is rehearse them. I read through them a couple of times. So I'm more fluid as I talk through it on the podcast. Didn't do that. Just went straight cold into it. Uh, Made a couple of notes on some of your answers as I was getting them during the week. Uh, And now for this show recap. Uh, I got to apologize right away. Usually what I do is I outline out what I'm going to say. I kind of go through it a couple times in my head through the course of a Wednesday. But today I needed just to take my notes directly that I took while watching the show. I did watch the show twice. Um, Took some notes and I'm just going to kind of wing it here straight off my notes from from last night. So um, I do apologize for the disjointed nature and sort of the you know, the, not as slick as it normally sounds. So let's do it. Let's talk about season nine, episode four called Spoils Alert. Uh, we're going to start off in the swamp. What I like here in the swamp is this nice little chuckle between Laird and Marty um, right at the beginning. Uh, makes you sort of calm down a little bit that maybe uh, these guys are sort of seeing eye to eye, maybe a little bit more than they were last week. Uh, there's an interesting quote there from Laird. He's he's talking about um, the work that they've done. He just and this is important for all of us to remember. He says, "quote unquote," work was all under permit. So in order to do any of that stuff, and I think it's so important to remember this, in order to drain the swamp, this goes back to the first couple of times they ever tried draining the swamp in the first season. They need to get government permission to do so, and to dig there, they need to get permission to dig there, and it's exactly because of the possibility of what they found last week. That's the whole point of permitting, right? So when the narrator calls this order to stop work stunning, Um, the only people who are stunned by all this are the writers, right? Because anybody actually paying attention and who knows what permitting is all about and the reason why they're permitting or knows anything about the laws in place for Oak Island, which everybody on this show knows There's nothing stunning about it. It's exactly been a long time. It's really been a long time coming. You know, Um, Laird clarifies that there is a quote unquote no go zone, which is about 120 feet from the center, uh, which essentially stops work on this entire corner of the swamp, but not the entirety of the swamp. So just keep that in mind. Um, As we talk about this, my mind goes back to the aforementioned Aaron Taylor, who we talked about before. One of the first times I remember Aaron Taylor ever being on the show, he was discussing the swamp. I think it was the eye of the swamp. And what he said was that this could have been a place where they, where someone sourced blue clay, most likely for pottery and for that kind of thing. And my question was, could that have been First Nations in origin? Could that have been Mi'kmaq in origin? Uh, I never really got an answer on that as we never went back to it. And I guess I'm starting to wonder now if everything in this swamp, and I'll only say the swamp, I won't extrapolate it to everything, all the mysteries, could this all be Mi'kmaq and origin? I think it's important to understand what that could be and maybe go down that road. I know the show won't, but maybe we can get some intrepid people who can. Anyway, let's go over to um, something found last week as well a piece of what we call gunshot or grape shot, this small little round rock it looked like. Um, it was found a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they This time they're bringing it to the, it was either last week or the week before, I can't remember now. Um, they bring it to the archaeological trailer for Kelly Barrasso, who takes care of all these artifacts um, to clean up, and also for Dr. Spooner to see Um and they compare it with one found last year by Michael John, who was one of the guys who, worked for, who works with Billy Gerhardt. He was doing like a spoils table sort with either Alex Lagina or Jack Begley or both, for all I know, and found something that looked exactly the same. They kind of hold them up next to each other, and they are exactly the same. It's really kind of cool. Uh, later on, in, they have a war room meeting with a guy named Dr. Robert Rayside from Acadia University. Now, he's done sort of an analysis on this, sort of a chemical analysis, Right. And he finds that they're made of a naturally occurring rock from volcanic island chain, mostly found in volcanic island chains. He gives the example of the Azores or the Canary Islands. Um, the problem is that means they then connect these directly to Oak Island through Portugal or Spain, since the Azores and the Canary Islands were a big part of sort of the Portuguese and the Spanish um, you know, age of sail, let's put it that way. Uh, and what they do is they spend a lot of time talking about the origin of these things, potentially being from the Azores, the Canary Islands, uh, rather than talking about what they actually are. I never heard any confirmation that this was indeed ammunition. Um, I'm not really sure. Uh, and it does look it to me, but uh, we haven't really had any discussion on that. I would like to hear sort of somebody with more of a historical frame of reference for what these things could be and who could have used them and the caliber, what they were used for. Uh, I I don't know why we haven't gone down that road. The source of where they got the rock from, I mean, that could be a lot of different things, right? Uh, And so I would like to see sort of more of a historical use on it. I also just want to mention this. And I don't want to burst any bubbles here. Folks, there are a lot more (laughs) chains of volcanic islands in the world than just the Azores and the Canary Islands. So, uh, you know, he used them as an example of volcanic islands, um, but did not say that these rocks were specifically from only those two. Important to keep that in mind. Anyway, okay, I'm not going to take any breaks here. I'm just going to go through this as quickly as we can because <laughs> I'm running short on time. Um, so let's do the money pit stuff, right? We go over to the money pit and we're digging a new hole. This one's called D1. It's just west of D2, which is, and this is kind of on the western corner, west of C1. Um, at 84 feet down, they pull up a big chunk of wood. Terry says something that's really kind of cool. He says that uh, it looks like what they're following here is a shaft and not a tunnel, but that he also thinks that if this is a shaft, it's quite a big one, right? Because of the space in which they're finding this. Uh, It's hard to really frame why he thinks that for me to understand why he thinks that, but he did mention that a couple of times. Now, at the south end of the Money Pit lot, lot 18, we see Charles and Scott uh, Barlow and Billy Gerhart digging in the Dunfield spoils. Now, the narration says that they're working here because of the swamp stoppage, like they're trying to find something else to do with themselves. But I believe they've worked here before, right? I mean, I, I, I thought we saw this a couple of weeks ago, working in the, in the spoils of the Dunfield pile, even during the, the work being done at the swamp. So I'm not really sure that that's accurate. But anyway. Gary's detecting in there. He pulls up a possible chisel, and he decides that it's a small chisel uh, for finishing work. He says. Um, Gary then brings up the carved stones um, again. I don't have time today to go through all those, but over the years there have been a lot of stones with carvings found on it on uh, on Oak Island. There was one that had a like a mason's masonic looking G. There's one with the year seventeen oh four with it, there's uh or the number seven one seven zero four. There's another one that had a marking on it that looked like H and O, and of course, um, the narrator brings up the ninety foot stone and then you know, questions whether or not this chisel could have been the one that made the ninety foot stone. I mean I Talk about your leaps of, uh, of faith here. That's quite one of them. Um, these carved stones are interesting. We could talk about them in a future show if we come back to this. Um, I've talked about them before, so I don't want to get too much into them. There are various theories on these things and whether or not they're fakes and who found them and what kind of period they're from. There, it's kind of all over the place, so it's really not all that fascinating right now. Um, The fascination level on these carved stones kind of goes up and down. Anyway, uh, let's continue on. Later on, we see a new hole being dug. This was CD 4.5. Now, this is just to the east of C1, right on top of C1. And in here, they pull wood out at 75-foot level. Um, Charles then metal detects it with a little pointer thing, which they do in all of them, but only show you when they actually find something. And he pulls out a small piece of metal. Now, There's there's another interesting little line here. This whole C1 area, and Charles kind of frames this really nice for us. He says, quote, we have no historical record of work being done in this area. Meaning, before them, we have no historical record of searcher work being done here. Just to add that to it, right? So this is not where Dunfield dug his giant crater, Um, This is not where the Truro company or anybody like that did their money pit work as far as we can tell, although those (laughs) some of that information could be a little inaccurate. But this far corner of the money pit area, as far as we know, there's been no searcher work here. Anyway, they bring this metal back to Kelly Barrass in the archaeology uh, trailer, and he cleans it. looks like it's something encrusted up in metal, and they put it under this XRF thing that gives you the chemical compounds of the different elements in there, and they find another piece of with traces of gold in it. So, I mean, kind of pretty cool, right? Now, let's go back to the Dunfield area a little bit. I should have mentioned this before. Um, later on, we find sort of a beam piece in the Dunfield spoils. Um, and, you know, it's important to understand as we're going through this Dunfield thing, as they pull up stuff like cribbing spikes, that like Gary finds a cribbing spike and, and, and uh, pieces of a beam. Keep in mind as we go forward, if the Dunfield spoils is a thing, you know, that we continue throughout the rest of this year, keep in mind that Dunfield had absolutely no interest in the history or the archaeology or what other searchers did. Nothing. He didn't care about any of that stuff. What he cared about was digging a giant hole to find treasure. So all that stuff they could be finding there could be part of different searcher work and all that. We will never know. Um, it's I guess it's fascinating to find it and maybe to date it, but it's it's all it can all be written off as searcher related, unless there's some reason to believe otherwise. Okay, let's go back to that piece of metal that. Uh, they found in CD 4.5 that uh, Kelly Barassa showed us had potential gold in it. Now we go to the war room to end the show. And Dr. Brousseau, Krista Brousseau, who we saw last week in her lab, is now here on the island to report. Now, you always got to think to yourself, if she took the drive down here, there's something to say. There's some reason to, to discuss this, Right. So what she has done is she's done an analysis, a closer analysis, a microscopic analysis of this piece of metal from CD 4.5 that was found earlier. She calls it essentially an iron object with quote-unquote several gold flakes on it. Fascinating. Uh, She said the gold is similar to the gold found in the piece that they found earlier in D2, only a couple of weeks ago. And what she also says is the gold has the chemical makeup and of an histor of a historical her historical record says that the chemical makeup matches with that of South American gold. And here I am going to stop, and I am going to issue an apology to Marty Lagina. When Marty Lagina came from Dr. Brousseau's lab, um, he said that <laughs> that this could be tumbaga gold, and I sort of poo pooed it as, what does Marty know? Why doesn't he just listen to Krista Brousseau? Well, Marty, you were right, uh, and I won't doubt you again for your research moving forward. Uh, I think this is great. I'm, I'm very happy you're correct, because this is a really cool find. What she says is that this could be 14-karat gold or this rose gold, um, the kind of stuff that was made in South America by the Incas or the Maya or the Aztecs, you know, Central South America. This is, her historical records show her that this chemical makeup fits with this most likely, okay? The cool thing about it is that because of this chemical makeup, the natural um, explanation really doesn't work because within the gold is a mix of copper and gold that Dr. Brousseau says And she said pretty quickly here, but they did make a point of pointing this out, that Dr. Brousseau says, indicates this is not natural. This is man-made piece of gold, something gold used and manipulated to make rose gold, like I said, or 14-karat gold. So why are there many flakes of this on this piece of encrusted cement metal? Boy, it's hard for the imagination not to run wild on this one, right? All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Shameless plug time, I produce another podcast called Sit Downs and Sessions. Me and my friend and radio host Chris Poe sit down with a drink or two. We talk about pubs and we talk about music a lot. Uh, we do some politics now and again. Anything, you know, two, two buddies sit down and talk about uh, at a bar. Give it a listen. You can find Sit Downs and Sessions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the usual podcast places. Also, if you're around between 2 and 5 p.m. Eastern time on Wednesdays, I am DJing for a radio station called WDVR-FM, which is out of eastern New Jersey and western Pennsylvania. It's an all-volunteer community station. Just a lot of fun to do. Um, Every Wednesday from 2 to 4, I do a show called the Bourbon Street Bistro, which plays the music of New Orleans. And then from 4 to 5 p.m., I do a show called Island Vibes. We do a lot of music with a great sort of tropical feel to it. You can listen by going to WDVRFM.org if you're not in the uh, eastern Jersey, western PA or western Jersey, eastern Pennsylvania area, or just tell Alexa to turn on WDVR. Uh, Don't forget, uh, go to Patreon.com if you want to help out the show. Um, If you think the show's worth five bucks a month, then go over there, Patreon.com slash Diggin Oak Island to learn more on how you can help. If you're enjoying the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, I ask you please give us a five star rating anywhere you get your podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts. Thanks to everybody who's done that already. I really do appreciate it. And, uh, you know, five stars only. If you have a problem with the podcast, send it to me first. Let's talk about it before you ruin my ratings. <laughs> and again, if you have any questions or comments uh, you want to send directly to me, you can do so by email Island at gmail.com. Keep in mind, if you do send me that email or a direct message on social media or on the Patreon, I may answer it here on the podcast. So if you don't want your message read aloud, uh, just please make a note of that. Don't forget, follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Digging Oak Island. So until we speak again, have a happy and safe Thanksgiving. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.